The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hi, everyone. I'm Elaine, and this is the Mindful Matters Podcast. Before we dive into this really insightful episode today about how our physical body intersects with our stories, I want to mention that we're now in season three of the podcast, and we have some incredible guests coming up on the show. As always, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you for being here, and and thanks for being a part of the conversation. I can't think of anyone more passionate to talk about trauma in the body than my guest today, Jenny McGrath. In this episode, we're talking about how our bodies store trauma and how we can engage our bodies to heal trauma. This is a topic I think that we can all relate to at some level. All of us have some emotional and physical challenges that we've stored within the body. And so in today's episode, we talk about a number of topics. We talk about dissociation, what it feels like. We talk about how the body speaks to us and how trauma is stored within our bodies. We dig into the topic of the vagus nerve and the psoas muscle and how they relate to to trauma. And we even talk about how movement and connecting to our bodies can help bring us out of trauma. Jenny has so much to share with us today, so I hope you enjoy today's conversation. And before we dive into the the conversation today, let me tell you a little bit more about her. Jenny McGrath is a licensed mental health counselor and somatic educator. She's passionate about helping individuals and communities find their way back to their bodies so that they can live more freely from the inside out. She specializes in using movement and dance to help heal trauma, and she spent the last 10 years researching the ways that trauma gets stored within our bodies. She also focuses on people who are healing from religious trauma and and sexual religious shame. She believes in empowering people on their own healing journey and has created an online course over at indwellcounseling.com to help participants grow in their understanding of their body, trauma, and somatic forms of healing. I'm so excited for you to hear today's conversation. Thanks so much for being here. Jenny McGrath, welcome to the Mindful Matters podcast. Thank you so much. Really happy to be here. Yeah, I'm so thrilled that you're here. I'm so thrilled to have this conversation with you. And one of the things that I love about you is that you do such an amazing job of taking these really complex concepts and and making them super easy to understand. And so before we dive into some of those concepts today, uh, I want to start off with something personal because I think this is a really important place to start. Mm. Tell us about how and why you've evolved on this path. How did you become interested in the topic of trauma and and somatic forms of healing? Sure. I really think for me, it's been a lifelong journey before I even knew it was a journey. And I kind of think of my life sort of as a dichotomy where there was two things happening. One, I've always had a really natural 
fascination with body, with movement. I grew up as a dancer and I was always most happy when I was just rolling around or stretching or finding ways to be in my body. And I didn't know at the time how significant that was for me um, because the other side of that was that I also grew up in fundamental Christianity and received a lot of messages about my body being bad or sinful or dangerous. And um, those messages mixed with other traumas that I'd experienced created a lot of disconnection and dissociation from my body. And so for a long time, I would ask these questions of what does it mean when you feel like you're dreaming and when life doesn't feel real And I didn't grow up in an atmosphere that had a lot of language or understanding for trauma. And so this chasm grew more and more between me and my body. And by the time I was 20, I broke into shingles and my immune system shut down and I was having some pretty significant health issues. And so a very long story short, I ended up in graduate school for counseling psychology, primarily to really understand my own story and the messages that my body was speaking, but also wanting to impart that to others and have really been on a decade long journey of understanding how trauma is stored in our bodies and also how our bodies can resolve that trauma through movement, through dancing, through connecting to ourselves and one another. Um, And so it's really been kind of the journey of understanding and befriending and listening to my own body. I often say that I'm the biggest learner of what I teach and I, I teach because I need to hear this information as much, if not more than my students or participants or clients. And so um, I'm really on that journey to continue letting my body, letting my intuition sort of guide me as I continue to research and explore the different languages and the ways that we can understand trauma and embodiment. Yeah, I can relate to you so much. And I think a lot of our listeners can also relate. And, you know, to build off of what you're saying, one of the reasons why I resonate so strongly with your message is because for myself, several years ago, I was I was going through a really challenging time in my life where it felt like everything I had spent years creating was dismantling. Mm-hmm. And on an emotional level, I was I was not okay. I felt completely disconnected from my body. I found myself always in a dream state, like you were saying. And even basic daily decisions was a struggle for me. Sometimes I'd realized I was just staring off into space and and people would talk to me and I, I couldn't really register what they were saying. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know it at the time, but what I was experiencing was this dissociation that you were talking about. And so when I started to get you know, really curious about my internal body experience, that brought me to the work of trauma and somatic healing. 
And, uh, you know, as you had mentioned, we teach best what we most need to learn. I feel like you and I, we, we share a bit of similar DNA in that I think that we're both really passionate about sharing our lessons and our life experiences. And so I want to, I want to dig into the topic of dissociation. What is dissociation and what does it mean to store trauma in the body? I think it's easiest to understand dissociation by talking about physiologically how our bodies are are put together to help us survive. And so for many of our listeners or for ourselves, we might be familiar with the concepts of fight or flight or freeze. And what these are are biological automatic responses that our bodies have and all bodies have. You can see this with dogs and cats and antelopes. And what happens when our nervous system registers that something is dangerous or something is threatening? Then we go into sympathetic activation, which is our fight or flight network in our nervous system. And that happens when we, when we physiologically feel like there's something that we can do to overcome the threat. But what happens is if our body knows there's nothing we can do to escape the threat, if we can't run away or we can't fight it off, then we naturally and unconsciously and automatically move into a state of freeze. And really what this is, is our nervous system going into this preservation where we say we, we can't do anything about this, but maybe at some point this trauma or this stress or this threat will pass and then I'll be able to come back to myself. And so it really is this kind of out of body experience. And there's a lot of degrees of dissociation. You know, the, the very far end of that would be a physiological state of freeze where we might be catatonic and unable to move. But more common, it's really like you and I have already shared where it can be this dreamlike state where we're still going to work, we're still doing our daily activities, but we're feeling this disconnection from reality or from our bodies or from our sensations um, because there's something in our nervous system. And a lot of times this might be unconscious. We not, might not even be aware of what the threat is. Um, it's something in our body that tells us it's not safe to be fully present. And so I don't want to cast dissociation as something bad because it's a really brilliant way that our nervous system has been wired to help keep us safe and to survive traumatic events and instances. Um, but the, the issue becomes when we don't know that the trauma is in the past or we live in a chronic state of stress. You know, we live in a world with a lot of systems of oppression. And so the reality is that for a lot of bodies, they might not be safe. And so I think it's really important to honor the message that dissociation is telling us both of our individual story and also the collective atmosphere and culture and story that we're inhabiting. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think this is really interesting when we also consider 
the, you know, when we're out of our truth. So I think that we've been given this amazing gift of, of the wisdom of the body, the, the wisdom that sits within the body and our bodies will immediately respond when we're out of our truth. And, and I think that this is why polygraphs work so well, because the moment that we leave our truth, our immune system function goes down, our heart rate goes up, our adrenaline, our stress hormones increase. And this is the way the body speaks to us if if we listen. And so it's fascinating to me that we have this sort of bi-directional communication from the brain and the body. And there's 10 times more information moving from the body to the brain than the brain to the body. And so the majority of our emotional data is actually within the body. And our bodies influence our brain so much more than we thought. So I want to dig into this topic uh, a little bit with you. Can you give us an example of some of the ways the body communicates with us? Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the ways is, you know, continuing what we've already been talking about is I think the body speaks through what we notice, but also what we don't notice. Uh, when we feel disconnected from our body, when we feel a lack of sensation, or when we feel like our, we're dreaming, I think that's really important to be curious about and to not approach the body with any expectation or demand of what we should notice. And I think this is so important for trauma-informed yoga and different types of movement classes where sometimes we can add a burden on already traumatized bodies when we use language of, you know, feel your breath, feel your pelvis. And some bodies might be like, I don't feel my breath. And so I think it's important to weave in an understanding of notice what you notice, but also notice what you don't notice. Um, and I like to often use the image of our body as a map. And if there were certain places in your body where you felt like there was a lot of um, topography on that map, a lot of structure and awareness of sensations and viscera, and then also notice if there's places in the body where it feels like that is unexplored territory, where that map is just empty. And again, without judgment, we come to these experiences honestly, but just noticing if there are places where there might be disconnection. Um, and I think another way that the body can speak is, and I want to be really careful about this because I don't want to be prescriptive. I can't diagnose things. I'm not a doctor. And there's a really high correlation um, between complex trauma and health complications and autoimmune diseases. Um, Nadine Burke Harris uh, talks about ACE, which is adverse childhood experience. And when we've had certain adverse childhood experiences, we are more likely to have health complications later in life. And I think we've lived in a really symptom-focused culture and world where I, I hope we can take that one step further to say, what is this symptom communicating? Um, what is this pain in my gut communicating? What is this pain in my hip communicating? Um, and we really get to be curious about all of the sensations and, again, lack of sensations that we experience within the body. Yeah. 
And so before we talk about how we can support our body, I want to first dive into some of the research about the the vagus nerve. And I know that you talk a lot about the vagus nerve in, in your online course. Let's talk about why the vagus nerve is important, in, and especially in the context of healing trauma. Yeah, definitely. Um, so our vagus nerve, I like to refer to it as Resma Menicam calls it the soul nerve, because it really is the nerve that gives us so much of our experience. It's the nerve that's responsible for our social engagement, for the ways that we relate and communicate to one another through facial expressions, through tone of voice, through body posture. And our our vagus nerve is called the wandering nerve because it takes up a lot of territory in our body. It moves from our brain through our spinal cord, and then it has a bunch of branches in our chest. And then it also continues to move down and has branches in our belly and in our pelvis. And 80 to 90% of our vagus nerve is what we call afferent, which means that it's sending signals, as you said, from the body to the brain. And our vagus nerve is what tells us at that unconscious automatic level whether we're safe or not. And so we can't just think ourselves into a state of rest. We can't think ourselves into a state of safety. It really has to come from the vagus nerve telling us that we are safe enough to rest and to settle. And so it's such a significant nerve um, to get to tend to and get to be aware of as we talk about moving through trauma. Yeah, it's fascinating to me. And what are some of the ways that we can support the vagus nerve? How can we tonify and, and strengthen the vagus nerve? Sure. Yeah, there's definitely some exercises that are available to help stimulate the vagus nerve. Uh, Peter Levine, he founded um, Somatic Experiencing. He has a phrase, when in doubt, voo it out. And it's just making this VU long sound with your exhale. Um, and there's nothing magical about the VU word or sound. It's just that when we create a vibration through humming, through OM, through different sounds in our throat, it's actually creating vibrations that stimulate our vagus nerve. And we can also help activate it through taking really low and slow belly breaths. Uh, a lot of the signals that get sent from the body to the brain come from our belly. And our breath is more or less the on-off switch for our vagus nerve. So when we have really short, shallow breaths, it's sending signals to the vagus nerve that we're panting, essentially, that we're running or kicking. And so it tells the vagus nerve in the body we need to be in sympathetic charge. But when we're able to slow down our breath, when we're able to kind of extend into the full cylinder of our lungs and our rib cage, 
it's sending signals that we're not being chased, we're not having to fight anything off, that it's okay for the body to, to settle and to calm down. Um, and so low and slow breaths and vooing are really helpful ways to help stimulate and strengthen our connection to our vagus nerve. Yeah, I love those examples. And, you know, it's really fascinating to me that the the psoas muscle is also um, impacted uh, in trauma. Mm -hmm. And I would love if you can elaborate on what the psoas muscle is, where it is, why it's important, how is it affected, maybe even give a personal experience if you have one. I, I'd love if we can dig into this topic. Absolutely. Yes, I love the psoas. <laughs> and um, it really is this kind of feedback loop between the vagus nerve and our breath and our psoas. So as I was talking about low and slow breaths, that happens in our diaphragm, our primary muscle for breathing. And our diaphragm is connected fascially to our psoas. At the top of the psoas muscle, it connects to our spine and also has connective tissue to our diaphragm. And then the psoas muscle is a really long muscle that moves down through our belly and it goes through most of our primary vital organs in our belly. And then it connects to the top of our thigh bone, our femur bone. And it's the primary muscle associated with kind of bringing our knees towards our chest. And so it's nicknamed our fight flight muscle. Um, and Liz Cook has an extensive body of work about the psoas muscle and has spent her entire career researching the various ways in which um, when we are in sympathetic activation, the psoas muscle is unconsciously tightening because it's preparing to run or to kick, or if we're in freeze, it's preparing to kind of put us into a fetal curl position. And if we live in a chronic state of stress or if we have irresolved trauma, we can develop a pretty brittle and dried out psoas muscle that's just been on hyperdrive and it's become fatigued. And because of where it is, it is so connected to lower back pain, to hip pain, uh, to gut issues. And this is a really personal muscle for me because I spent um, about at least 10 years with chronic hip pain um, in my left hip. And I would always refer to it, unfortunately, as my bad hip. And I would like dig my elbow into it and I'd try to stretch it. And I was always like, if I can just get it to soften or release. And I was trying to do that through stretching. Um, but what happens when we stretch our psoas muscle because it is sympathetically charged is it actually ends up doing the opposite of what we want to do, where it then tightens and constricts and prepares for action. And so what's really more important is allowing our psoas muscle to feel supported and to feel held so that it actually gets to soften and relax. And so it was once I was introduced to that concept and once I felt that in my body, it was the first time I had experiences where I wasn't feeling pain in my hip. 
And it's an ongoing process and journey for me. I I notice when I haven't been doing things to uh, support my psoas because it's a really honest muscle. And so when we're stressed, when we're in in irresolved trauma, it's it'll let us know. Um, and often it'll let us know through again, lower back pain or hip pain, um, potentially digestive issues. Um, And so these are, again, just examples of the ways in which our bodies are speaking to us and telling us that they need tending and they need listening to. Yeah. And I think that this really speaks to how it can be really difficult to think our way out of a situation or Mm -hmm. think our way into safety. And I think it emphasizes how you know, we, we create our reality from the inside out, but we can also heal from the inside out. And um, I, I'd love if we can talk a little bit more about how to, to properly support the psoas. I love if you can just share maybe some specific movement patterns that would be supportive for the psoas muscle. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite um, things to do for the psoas muscle is called constructive rest. And so um, there are many different ways that you can do this. I like to do it assisted with some props. So what I do is I I sit down on the floor and I put a yoga block between my inner thighs, um, really as high up as I can get the yoga block into my inner thighs. And then I have my feet um, just about pelvis width or hip width distance apart. And I use a strap around my meaty part of my calves. So it's really the strap that's holding the yoga block between my legs. And then I have about uh, maybe eight inches between my heel and my sits bones. And then I just lay down and, and that's it. And I just stay there. And you really want to stay there for a while because of the fascial connection. Um, fascia can often take a lot longer than muscle to release and to move through. Um, And I will add a caveat that, you know, we do store a lot of emotion and memory in our psoas. And so there can often be really intense sympathetic charge that happens when we're in this posture. There can be really intense emotions. And so with everything that we do in our body, I think it's really best if we have a support system or we have a therapist or we have someone that can help us if we um, experience things that might be overwhelming. Because, um, you know, I never cease to be amazed at how much the body can say when we give it space to speak. Um, and if we haven't had a lot of space to allow the body to speak, sometimes what we end up learning and experiencing can be really intense. Um, And so I think it's always important to do that with care. Um, And then, you know, as we're in constructive rest, then we might notice that there's movements that our tailbone or our pelvis or our hips just naturally want to do as we're kind of unwinding that fascia and that connective tissue. And so I really think our bodies are the wisest thing about us and really just listening and following the impulses and the sensations of movement um, can be a really helpful way to let that so as just kind of start to come back online and get a little more fluidity into it. 
Yeah, I love what you said there. And I I think this is such a great reminder that healing is, it's such a process. I, I feel like I have been on this runway of healing over the years. And it's like every time I go to a yoga class or sometimes when I'm doing other explorative forms of movement that I have these sort of deeper layers of healing. It's like, oh, oh, where did that come from? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> Um, so it, it, I think, you know, what you're saying, I think it, it's powerful and it really speaks to how uh, it, it's such a journey. It's such a process and it's very personal, I find. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, we have a lot of practitioners in our audience. We have lots of uh, yoga educators. We have trauma-informed educators. And for anybody that is maybe looking for some more, some more depth, maybe some more education, some more, more support, or even a community that they can connect to, I love the course that you've created. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want, I'd love it if you could talk to us about that and, and maybe share a little bit about the some more details about that course. Yeah, absolutely. So I've created a course uh, called the Embodied Story Course, and it really comes out of this idea that all of our experiences are held in our bodies, and our bodies really have important stories to tell, and both our individual stories, but also our intergenerational and our collective stories, um, that our bodies are really the most honest thing about us. And so I, I often like to kind of come at our bodies and our stories from two vastly different angles. And so in my course, I have lectures where I go into more detail about the vagus nerve and the psoas and the breath and trauma and movement and why it's important for moving through trauma. And then I also have this other side that says, okay, now let's get out of our heads. Let's put everything that we learned in our brains on a shelf and just be in our bodies. And so um, I include a demonstration and an exercise of constructive rest, of vooing, of breathing, um, and just really allow people to kind of get to feel the story of their bodies from the inside out. Uh, And again, because of what can come up as we start to listen to the stories of our body, I really recommend having a support system or having a therapist that you can process that information with that comes up. And I really find that we understand our story more when we get to hear and experience stories that also aren't like our story at all. And so I've developed a community out of the course, and there's a couple different ways in which you can engage that community. There's the first tier, which includes four live Zoom calls with me and everyone that's going through the course. And it's just a time for further uh, discussion, further education, but also a time for processing and questions and just getting to hear from various bodies and stories. And then I also have a tier two, which is a 12-week intensive that um, is a small group of folks who are doing tier one, and they're going through the course in conjunction with other people doing tier one, but they're wanting to have more engagement around 
the sensations or the stories or the memories that are coming up and really have a space to creatively express their story um, through movement, through drawing, through music, through talking. Um, and so I've just been really amazed and so inspired by the different bodies and the different stories that have shown up in that community so vulnerably to kind of heal not only individual story, but collective story. And how do we orient towards social justice and towards equality in ways that really create a safety for all bodies, um, all races, all sexual orientations, all genders. Um, I think that we are always meant to be engaging our personal story in conjunction with the collective stories that we inhabit. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love that you intersect the, you know, the stories with the the physical body, and then you add in the creativity aspect. I think it's a really amazing program. Mm -hmm. And just to, you know, let the listeners know what is the name of that program? And, and how can they best uh, find it online? Yeah, it's called the Embodied Story Course. Um, and you can go directly to uh, the website is indwellmovement.com. Um, I'm hoping to offer more courses on there in the future. And so Indwell Movement is the umbrella site for various courses, but that's the one on there now. Um, you can also find me on Instagram at Indwell underscore movement. Um, and I try to keep updated on there with various classes and workshops and courses that I have uh, coming up. So those are both really great ways to, to find me and find the course. Perfect. And Jenny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast with us today. So appreciative of you sharing your wisdom, your knowledge. I want to wrap with some rapid fire questions about you. Are you ready for that? I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you always have in your fridge? <laughs> oh, uh, sauerkraut. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Love sauerkraut. Yeah, that's a good one, actually. Really good for bacteria and also really good for uh, for that gut-brain connection. Absolutely. So I like that. It's also been something, I think, since getting more in touch with my Polish heritage, I've discovered more of a fondness for all of the varieties of it. <laughs> oh, I didn't realize. Is that a staple of the Polish? It is. Mm -hmm. oh, okay, good to know. <laughs> All right. So what is the, uh, what is your favorite choice of movement or your favorite movement form of choice and why? Mm -hmm. My favorite is honestly just playing music and rolling around and seeing what happens, um, both on my own and in a group. Um, I, I really love how our bodies move when we're not telling them how to move. Um, you know, I grew up as a dancer and I do love a good dance class, but I also just love the freedom that comes through really authentic and expressive movements that are diverse as our bodies are and just get to kind of connect with each other in, a, in an authentic way. Um, and so really, that's honestly what most of my self-care is, is I just got to go move. I just got to go put on some music and see what happens. And that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah. And I think I actually recently saw a video that you created where you're 
where you're doing just that. And I, I love it. I think it's so inspiring. And I, that's something that I like to do too, just kind of dance around my condo or put some music on and move my body. I think it's amazing, amazing yeah. way to, to ground, to express, to feel good. It's it's awesome. Absolutely. And I actually teach a couple classes on Zoom weekly that are just that. And so it's a community of folks and anybody's welcome who just wants a space to move but not be told how to move and also get to do so in community. And so that's been really um, just a beautiful resource for myself and for others throughout um, this pandemic to get to connect in our bodies in a different way. Yes, absolutely. All right, last question. What is something that people get wrong about you? Oh, a lot of people think I'm an extrovert because <laughs> I love people. Um, and I do love socializing, but I am an introvert through and through. And so I, you know, after a teaching, I kind of have to go bury myself under a blanket and not talk to anyone for a while because I don't get energy from being around people, even though I love it. Um, and a lot of people are like, no, you're definitely an extrovert. Um, but I am true and true an introvert. <laughs> yeah, me too. Actually, I'm like the little crab. Like I need to go back into my home space exactly. to, yep. to re-energize. And then I can come out and be like, oh, this is fun. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jenny, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have you here on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I love this resource that you've created and the different ways in which you're sharing stories and knowledge with practitioners and teachers. So thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. Thank you. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tawny Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwoods. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I will stand here and shout it out.